You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their fathers' houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before Yahweh in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before Yahweh to all the people of Israel. And they looked, and each man took his staff. And Yahweh said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses. As Yahweh commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of Yahweh shall die. Are we all to perish? Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 633 of this podcast. That was Numbers chapter 17, not a long chapter at all, but an interesting one, an odd one. And surely a beneficial one. You've got this constant grumbling against Moses and Aaron. You've got this conflict and you've got selfish ambition and vain conceit. You've got people who are leaders of tribes, who are chiefs, who are prominent, who are influential, who are well-known, constantly grumbling and trying to stir the people up and trying to rebel against, first and foremost, God, but then, humanly speaking, Moses and Aaron. Part of how their rebellion against God expresses itself is they're rebelling against the human authorities that God has chosen to lead them. Moses and Aaron are the chosen authorities. They are the chosen leaders, chosen by God. And so, what's God going to do here? He's going to do something that makes it indisputable, makes it undeniable. How do you argue with something like this? This is symbolic, and the Jordan Peterson types would no doubt say, 
ah, yes, this is a very useful construct, and they would psychologize it, no doubt. But they don't believe that this actually happened. They would say this is very uh, <laughs> symbolically significant and important, but it's just that, right? It's, it's only that. And I would say it really happened, and also it's symbolic. And also there are psychological ramifications. It doesn't have to be either or. Either it really happened or it has a psychological application or it has a symbolic importance and significance. It's not either or. But just as the text says, all of these staves were collected and the names of the chiefs were written on them. And this was to demonstrate and to give an object lesson that God himself is choosing Aaron for the house of Levi. God himself has chosen Moses and Aaron to lead this people. And let's keep the one that budded, the one that God miraculously, wonderfully blessed with Aaron's name written on it. Let's keep that one handy in the tent of meeting, just in case we get another instance of rebellion. We can pull this out as a reminder. See this? Remember how God chose your leaders? It's not a long chapter, but it is a chapter that is filled with importance and significance because it is important. I may sometimes give the wrong impression, but it is important that we be in subjection to proper authorities. It really is important that we would submit ourselves to every legitimate authority. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who says they have authority, everybody who tells you to do something is an authority. And we know that that must be the case because you have in the context of numbers here, you have influential leaders of the people rebelling against God. And if one of those chiefs were to tell you or I, to join in their rebellion against God, what would we do? If we valued our lives, we would not go in with them. We would side with who God had clearly chosen. We wouldn't join the rebellion because sometimes that's what happens is lower level authorities get ambitious. They get the feeling like they don't have as much power as they would like and so God has given them a certain amount of authority. Sure, he's given them a certain amount of standing. Sure, but when they try to exceed that and rebel, they're doing the same thing that Satan did. They're doing the same thing that Lucifer did. Lucifer had a proper place with authority, with responsibility, with prestige, with standing, but it wasn't enough for him. He wanted more. And he staged a rebellion. And what will the final judgment be on all of those angels who rebelled against God? They'll be thrown into hell for all eternity. Right now, they're let loose. But even now, they can't do anything beyond what God allows them to do. I don't believe that that means that God, on a case-by-case basis, is giving thumbs up, thumbs down with the demons with the devil any more than that's the case with us. You can say it's the Lord's will 
that I do such and such a thing. Well, it may be that he permits you to do it. That doesn't mean that you're serving God, you're pleasing God. God allows human agents to disobey and to do what they ought not to do, but you're only allowed to disobey for as long and as far as God lets you. And then at a certain point, sometimes if you have found favor in God's eyes and he wants to correct you and restore you, he'll give you an object lesson to bring you around, to demonstrate to you that, no, that's not the way I want you to go. Like in number 17, for instance, the worst thing that can happen to you is you're going down the wrong road and the Lord just leaves you to your devices, leaves you to enjoy the fruits of sin and folly. That's the worst thing for you, actually, because the longer that goes on, the harder it is to repent because all of this reward has built up in your mind the idea that these things are actually good. Now, as Augustine would say, evil is a diminution of the good. It's a privation of the good. You can take that too far and say that everything's good. Therefore, no, (laughs) no, that wouldn't make any sense when God says, don't do this, do this. Categories of things can be good and also at the same time, not good for you to have, not for you in their particulars or at particular times. This specific thing is a good thing to have. A house is a good thing to have, for instance. And yet one of the 10 commandments is to not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. So if I, as someone renting for going on four years, renting a house for my family after having been a homeowner for seven years, six years, if I am looking at my neighbor's house and I see, wow, this is a great house. You got it paid off. Wow, that's fantastic. Man, this is, I would, I, I wish this was my house. Ooh, wait a second. I can't just hide behind houses are good things to have and a blessing from the Lord. No, no, I am probably at risk of coveting my neighbor's house. And in that case, it's somewhat irrelevant that houses are a good thing to have in that particular case, because I'm sinning. I'm sinning against God and I'm sinning against my neighbor who has a house. Well, so also here, it's good to have authority. It's good for there to be a recognized authority over the people of Israel, but that doesn't give an excuse to the chiefs who were involved in Korah's rebellion, these 250 well-known men, prominent men from the tribes. It didn't give them an excuse. And so also in our context, just because you see somebody who is very ambitious and they are saying they're pursuing good things, that doesn't mean that the way in which they're pursuing those good things is good. And it doesn't mean that those good things are for them specifically. This can get very confusing in political discourse because you'll hear talk of this or that being a right, right? People have a right to affordable housing. Well, I, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Maybe it would be more correct to say, If there is fraud, if there is usury, if there is exploitation, if there is oppression in relation to people being able to procure affordable housing for themselves, 
Let's deal with that. Let's get that stuff out of the way, not extract more and more and more wealth from those who are actually working to give to those who have no intention of working, haven't been working, aren't working now, don't want to work in the future. How about, here's an idea, ease regulations and eliminate taxes on the materials and the services that go into building houses. There's an idea. How about open up public lands, open up federal lands and state lands, but there's a whole lot of federal lands in the West. Open up those federal lands, just like was the case 150 years ago, when there was an encouragement, an incentive to go West and to settle and fill out the land out West. How about do something like that? Instead of the federal government just hoarding a whole bunch of land that's not being put to any productive use and then claiming that that's conservation. How about give that to people who need homes? And then, oh, by the way, let's teach them how to build their homes. And oh, by the way, let's make the materials that go into building their homes less expensive, more affordable. Make a tax holiday for a period of years on the services that go into building these houses, building these homes, these domiciles. There's an idea. Maybe lower taxes instead of raising taxes. Maybe, I don't know, stop trying to usurp the proper role of heads of households, because that's another thing. That's another thing that's interesting about this passage and the larger context of numbers is you have this idea that there should be representation. There should be headship and authority within each of the 12 tribes, within each clan, within the tribes, within each family, in each clan. There should be authority. There should be representation. There should be somebody who is looked to to make decisions. That's good, right? That's a good thing to have, and we need that. We need to have men who are in authority. It's just those men themselves also need to be under authority. But in the context here, (laughs) this is actually a very, very flat hierarchical structure in many ways. There are some basic matters of justice that are attended to. There are some basic matters of logistics that are attended to. There is a certain tithe that is extracted from the people of Israel, and it is given to the Levites. That's their portion. Everyone gives the first 10% of their income to the Levites, and that's what the Levites live on. And if you add that all up, by the way, you're going to get 110%. So the Levites are going to be just a little bit ahead of everybody else actually, as a matter of fact, in terms of wealth and prosperity. They're going to be living fairly well, but they're serving the Lord and they're serving the people and they are the civil government. In this episode, I want to talk about that whole question of tithing more. And I want to talk about current economic conditions and I want to talk about authority and I want to talk about a book I just finished up yesterday the 5 a.m. Club. Stay tuned for the review of the 5 a.m. Club by Robin Sharma. Own your morning, elevate your life. That'll be at the end of this episode. But for right now, let's dive into this whole question of tithing because this is terribly relevant to 
Numbers 17 in the Old Testament. You know, this question of tithing came up after a members meeting. In my mind, I wanted to track this down. I wanted to chase it down. And once my mind was on the topic, how could I not bring it to the podcast? This is an important matter for the Christian. This is an important matter to me personally, as a head of my household, as a breadwinner, as someone who has a job that brings in wages. I am paid. Today is payday. So that's another reason why I'm thinking about it. But this is in the discourse in our church right now because there is an expectation, a plan to recognize additional pastors. There are currently two pastors who have been serving, one full-time vocational ministry, the other one bivocational, running a business, owning a business, while at the same time uh, being a pastor for several years now. I think eight. I think it's been eight years that they've been running with that structure. There was a time at the very beginning where there were additional pastors who were more senior, who were also working alongside in this body, in this local body of believers. Those pastors have since moved on to other churches or they are not at Summit View. The Lord took them somewhere else. But with raising additional pastors, this question of what should they be paid has come up. And with the question of what should they be paid also comes a broader question of, well, where is the money going right now that the church brings in? That is given in, as we say, tithes and offerings. And how much is coming in compared with how much would potentially need to come in in order to pay additional pastors who would be recognized, who would be raised here shortly. And so this came up, and I'm not going to (laughs) uh, get into the details of the members meeting. I'm not interested in doing that on this podcast. That's not my place. That wouldn't be fair to you. That wouldn't be kind or appropriate in relation to our local church body. If it's not your business, then let's talk in generalities, that'll probably be more helpful both for our local business and also for your context. If you have your own local church that you're a member of, or you're a part of, or you regularly attend, or you're just an outside observer, you're just looking at American Christendom, scratching your head sometimes. In all of the above, I think it's more helpful if I say, here's how this topic came up, here's why it's on my mind, and here's what the Bible has to say about it. Here's what's bothering me about what I hear other people saying. Here's what I'm comforted in or reassured in, or I'm sure of from God's word. Others may differ. That's fine. If your conscience leads you to a different conclusion, or if your study of God's word leads you to a different conclusion, then by all means, if I'm in the wrong, if I say something out of sorts here, please correct me. But so also, if you're out of line, if you're incorrect, if you're mistaken, I want to correct you as well. I want you to be less mistaken. I want you to be more correct. That's the whole idea. That's how we build up one another. That's how we edify. That's how we glorify God. That's how we serve him better together. That's how we have a good testimony to those who are not believers. So I found this link 
I found this resource over at Tithely, and it's a article in their blog about what the New Testament says about tithing. Tithing in the New Testament, what does it say? What does the New Testament say about tithing? Is it a requirement? And should we continue to give our money to the church? We look at Bible verses to answer your questions. Now, you may know, you may not know, that Tithely is an online giving tool that churches and other organizations and ministries utilize. It automates the process. A lot of people pay their bills online. And if they want to tithe and give offerings, they can use this resource. Very handsome, very well-constructed, it seems. It appears to me, looking at it. But Hillsong uses Tithely, C3, North Coast, the Salvation Army, Rock Church. If you recognize any of those names, surely you'll recognize Hillsong and the Salvation Army. But that's where Tithely is coming from. They facilitate a lot of tithing. And I'm sure they take a small portion, and that's how they run their business. They take their share so as to facilitate the upkeep of the website and the infrastructure and security and all that. But here's this article about what the New Testament says about tithing. To tithe or not to tithe, that is the question. At some point, every Christian will face the question, of whether they choose to tithe or not. More important than relying on your bank account statement or personal feelings about tithing, however, is looking at biblical truth on tithing. What does the New Testament say about tithing? What did Jesus say about tithing? What is the purpose of giving money to church anyway? And when did tithing start in the church? In this guide, let's clarify what the Bible actually said about tithing. We'll unpack the origins of giving 10% of your money to God to figure out how biblical and relevant the practice is today. Now, let me just start off by saying yes and amen and well stated and well put and I'm with you. I'm with you so far, right? Doing great. (laughs) You're doing great, Tithely. What does the Bible say about tithing one-tenth? The verse about tithing one-tenth of your income is found in Leviticus 27.30. Quote, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to Yahweh. It is holy to Yahweh. End quote. The 10% requirement specifically comes from the Hebrew translation of tithe or ten. Now, there's a, a couple of Hebrew characters there. I can't read them. I don't know Hebrew. I do have resources that I can avail myself of to look up what the Hebrew word would be, but for the purposes of this discussion... They're saying tithe means 10 or 10th. Other passages also talk about tithing, such as the following. Numbers 18.26, quote, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as Yahweh's offering. Deuteronomy 14.22, quote, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Second Chronicles 31.5, quote, As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything, end quote. So does the Bible actually say to give 10%? Yes. Even before tithes were required by Mosaic law, Abraham tithed once, 
Genesis 14.20, and Jacob pledged to tithe all that he had, Genesis 28.22. Later, the Old Testament law required multiple tithes for the Levites, temple operations and feasts, and the poor and unfortunate. In total, tithes came out to 20 to 30% of incoming money, plus any additional voluntary giving of first fruit and free will offerings, which we'll detail in the next section. They write, they, because tithely is the only name given for the author, they don't, they over at tithely could be a bunch of men, could be a bunch of women, could be some men, some women, I don't know, not sure. Continuing on, in the Old Testament books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God gave Moses the law that included instructions on how to generously give to God and his people. Here are some of the required tithings and offerings that the Israelites had to give. The first tithe, all Israelite families were asked to give one-tenth of their produce, flocks, and herds. That amount was set aside and given to the Lord annually to support the Levites in their priestly service as they had no other source of income or land ownership. Then there was the festival tithe. Israelites, mainly in Jerusalem, had to give another tenth of their resources to sponsor religious feasts and festivals throughout the year. These events were grand religious celebrations, so the Israelites spared nothing to bring thanks and praise to God. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 27. Then there was the poor tithe. Israelites had to give a tithe to the poor and needy every third year. It's unclear whether this is a third full tithe or the second festival tithe was being donated to the poor that year, Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29, but there was certainly a tithe set aside for the unfortunate. The point of tithing is to support the ongoing work of God's people. This is different from the purpose of offerings, which was acted as a personal thanksgiving and repentance of sins. Among the offerings, you had propitiatory offerings. So those would be material sacrifices to atone for one's sins, both those that were known and unknown. Then there were dedicatory offerings to remind the Israelites of the ongoing goodness of God. Then there were communal offerings. These included the peace offering in Leviticus 3 and 7, 11 through 26, and the votive offering in Leviticus 7, 16 to 17, and number 6, 21. There was typically a vow that accompanied the votive offering. But if you've been paying attention to this point, you noticed that all of these passages, all of these references are Old Testament. All of these references are the Israelites. So what about that? That doesn't tell us what the New Testament has to say about tithing. All right. The next section at Tithely. What does the New Testament say about tithing? <clears throat> We've established, they write, that the Old Testament had a lot of tithing and offering rules, but what does the New Testament say about tithing? After Jesus saved humanity from eternal death, he introduced a new perspective on tithing and offerings, John 3.16. Jesus endorses tithing, but expects his followers to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, whom he encouraged to continue tithing, Matthew 23.23. 23. Now, let me just pump the brakes a little bit on Jesus encouraging the Pharisees to continue tithing, what he actually says is important. So let's look up Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So, if I may, (laughs) if I may, the big takeaway, the big point of Matthew 23, 23 is not, hey guys, you should all be tithing more. The big point here, the big takeaway is, yeah, tithing's great. How are you doing on the weightier matters of the law? And that is still a very pressing question, which we need to wrestle with in an American context. No doubt. No doubt. More on that to come for now. Let's continue on with tithely. Here are the key ideas of the principle of giving. God owns everything and his people are money managers. 1 Corinthians 10.26 is cited here by Tithely. They also point to 1 Timothy 6.17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God wants us to be generous. Giving to God, Tithely writes, is the best antidote for materialism. Money can't buy happiness. Also, Tithely points out, Christians are to give to the church in proportion to God's provision. Instead of asking how much is required, Christians are to ask, how much can I give? Tithing in the Old Testament established rules for proportionate giving today. Anybody dedicated to Christ should be able to offer an appropriate portion of their wealth voluntarily to support the ongoing operations of the church. That's what Tithely says, but they don't have a scripture reference for that last point. They have three bullet points in this section. They do not have a scripture reference for saying that each Christian, anybody dedicated to Christ, should be offering a portion of their wealth. And let me just point out, I'm not disputing that we should, we should be able to, I'm not disputing that it's good for us to be generous. I'm not disputing that we should support, that we must support the ongoing operations of the church if we are the church. But what does that mean? What does that actually translate to? What are the operations of the church? Let me just suggest to you that the operation of the church needs to be thought of more holistically than is in my experience, in my observation, so often the case, the operation of the church is not paying the pastor's salary, the secretary's salary, the <laughs> taxes and utilities and maintenance costs of the building where you meet, first and foremost. Those are all means to an end. Are they good to pay for and support if they are pursuing the actual main operation of the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. But you can have a church, and there are plenty of Christians around the world in countries where Christianity is persecuted. There are plenty of churches around the world that don't have a dedicated church building. They just meet in homes. They meet secretly in homes. And what would we say is the operation of the church in those cases? And what about in countries where the Christians are so poor because they're persecuted? Because Christianity is effectively, if not a death sentence, it's at least a short trip 
to second-class citizen status. And therefore, you're not going to be wealthy. You're not going to be prominent. You're not going to be a person of means and authority in the community if you're a Christian. Therefore, those churches don't pay their pastors salaries like we do here in the U.S. What are the operations of the church in those cases? This is an important question we really need to grapple with, particularly if in our context, in the American context, in the year 2023, there's increasing hostility towards Christianity in public. At a certain point, unless there's a major revival and there's a major turning away from sin as a people, which you and I, we can't make that happen. We can pray for that to happen. We can work towards that. We should. We should hope that that happens. But what if there isn't? What if the hearts are hard, the necks are stiff, and Christianity becomes an underground faith here in America? What are the operations of the church in that case? If they can't have a church building, if the congregants can't afford a salary, they can't afford to pay the salary of full-time pastors and staff. They can't afford to maintain a separate building just to meet. I would dare say the operations of the church are going to look quite different. And even if you do have all those things, looking at when Christians don't have those things should help us to clarify and prioritize and to recognize what is a means to what ends. And what ends are we pursuing with our view of ongoing operations of the church? Tithely continues. Finally, a note on Hebrews 7, a passage that parallels Melchizedek, the priest to whom Abraham gave one-tenth of what he had, to Jesus. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, for the sake of time, let me point out again that these things are descriptive. They're not necessarily prescriptive in the New Testament age in which we find ourselves. For the sake of time, let me actually skip on down to the section that I didn't expect to like best, but I do, tithing in the New Testament, John MacArthur's thoughts. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Tithely here highlights in three paragraphs and two bullet points what John MacArthur has to say about the question of tithing in the New Testament. Tithely writes, John MacArthur is an iconic pastor and author known for his internationally syndicated Christian teaching via radio, television, and a website called Grace to You. He has been the pastor of Grace Community Church since 1969, a non-denominational church in Sun Valley, California. Today, he is a well-known pastor that most Christians worldwide look up to, one who has had many thoughts on tithing in the New Testament, such as, there are two kinds of giving, giving to the government, which is always compulsory, and giving to God, which is always voluntary. In the Old Testament, as the Levitical priests were the civil government, tithes were required taxes for funding the national budget in Israel. 
by the New Testament, Christians were not commanded to tithe anymore, but rather encouraged to voluntarily give to the church and to God in proportion to their wealth, even in New Testament passages like Matthew 22, 15 through 22, Matthew 23, 23, and Romans 13, 1 through 7. Jesus was only referring to the Old Testament command on tithing, not advocating for the return of the requirement. The guideline for tithing and offering today is vastly different, but aptly explained by Paul, quote, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, end quote. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 7 is le mot juste. That is the passage that we want to ponder. That's the passage that we want to really keep at the fore of our thoughts here on this topic. And the reason I say that is I've been in contexts. I've been in churches where a building was desired. In fact, a, a number of years ago before I moved my family back to my home state of Montana, we were very involved in a church in Hillsboro, Ohio that had met for all of its history to that point at the local community college. And that was ceasing to be a good fit. That was no longer going to be a good fit moving forward. And they had grown tremendously. They were a big, big church by the time that we left. But they were looking to build a building on the other side of town. And so what do they do? They start talking about how much money do we have? How much money should we borrow? How much is responsible for us to borrow and take out in loans? Should we be able to pay for this thing cash? Or should we take out a little bit of debt and then we have to service that debt and then our giving, so much of the money that's coming in will be dedicated to paying off these loans on a certain schedule how do we do this wisely? Who do we hire to be the architect and the builders and inspectors and all the rest? And it was a big to-do. And I'll tell you what, that changes the focus of a church to all of a sudden go from what does God's word say about how we live, our personal private lives, how we raise our families, how we engage with work, how we engage with our studies, how we interact with our community. When you shift to all of a sudden talking quite a lot because the leadership is thinking quite a lot about a building program, that really can shift the mindset of the whole church in a different direction. And it can shift the way of thinking about ministry generally. And it can shift the way of thinking about, dare I say it, conflict and potential for scandal in ministries. And I'll spare you the gory details, but I'll just say this. I had a bit of a trouble at a certain point that I wonder how differently it would have been handled had there not been such a focus, such an emphasis on this new building program. And we're started, we're engaged, we're telling people to be giving. We don't want to jeopardize tithes and offerings from the congregation because of a potential for a scandal over here with a ministry leader. I was raising some issues and some concerns with regards to a ministry leader, a prominent 
person that I was friends with in the church. Privately, right? Privately, I was talking with leadership at the church we were at. And some of how that was responded to was very appropriate. And some was a little odd. It was just a little off. And in hindsight, I wonder how much of it being off was because God loves a cheerful giver, but you might not have quite so much cheerful giving if it turns out there's a scandal with a prominent ministry leader in the church. So then my point in saying all of this is not that having a dedicated building for the church to meet is bad. I don't mean that. And it's not to say that having full-time vocational ministers on staff at a church is bad. I'm not suggesting that. I don't think that. I think it's negotiable. I think sometimes it can get in the way. and Sometimes the means are not there, but I don't think it's a bad thing. We certainly see full-time vocational ministry, if you will, with the Levites in the Old Testament. We certainly see a dedicated building in the Old Testament, first with the tent of meeting, then later with the temple. And God blessed that and God commanded that. But in the New Testament, (laughs) your mileage may vary. (laughs) It may vary a little bit. And so I bring this up because in that context and in another context, which was the next church that we attended, actually in Montana, when we moved to Montana, there again, there was another building program. This time an expansion was being planned out. If I recall, unless it was a brand new building, they were going to build a whole new building. And here we go again, right? The church is growing. That's good. We need more space. That's good. We need to expand. So we've got space to put everybody under one roof and do the work of ministry in this community. That's good. Those are good things. It's going to cost money. Okay, that's fine. That's going to require more giving. That's fine. But I observed in that case too, there was a shift in the temperature in the room when all of a sudden everybody was being told, you might need to give more. Please give more so that we can do this work. You'll notice as well when a missionary comes in to share about the work of ministry that they're doing in another country, overseas, there's a shift very often in the tempo of what they're sharing, what they're telling you from here's what the Lord is doing. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're seeing. Here's the good fruit that we're seeing borne out. When all of a sudden that turns to an ask for financial support, there's a shift in the room. It's always there. And that's not to say that missionaries shouldn't be supported. It's not to say they shouldn't ask for support, but it is to say that shift, I think, puts us all on notice that something is happening that we need to be careful about. And when we take care is on the front end. Before we get into that kind of a situation, I dare say, if you're a missionary, you plan that out. You don't just jump in cold and say, all right, guys, give me money. Oh, you want to hear about the missionary work? Yeah, sure. What do you want to know? You know, you don't do that, right? You plan it out. You think about this. If you've got a presentation, you prepare the presentation. You think carefully about what you're going to say, especially if you don't want to twist anybody's arm. You don't want anybody giving begrudgingly or out of guilt 
or out of compulsion. You want a cheerful giver. You want them to be happy to be giving to the work of ministry because they believe in the appropriateness of that. When a building campaign is announced or when there's talk of raising additional pastors, you know, you know that responsible pastors, and we do have very diligent pastors, I'm happy to report, who take it very, very seriously that they are sharing what the Lord would have them to share. They're deciding what the Lord would have them to decide. They're doing what the Lord would have them to do. But you definitely have a sobriety, an added sobriety and carefulness when talking about money matters because some people are very well off, but they're not generous. And so how do you approach that? Some people are not well off at all, and they may feel grieved. They may, they may feel burdened or guilty or ashamed of themselves that they don't have anything to give in this moment. And you don't want to burden them unnecessarily. You don't want to grieve them unnecessarily because you've asked everybody to step up. You've got people in the middle who may not have a lot, but they have extra. They're comfortable. And maybe they give, maybe they don't. And are we only just realizing that we need to be talking about being generous now that we have a project we want funded? Or should we have been talking about the importance of generous giving all along the way up to this point to where this is just like breathing? This is just what we do. This is just who we are. This is what we are supposed to be about because this is what the Bible says. This is what God's word says. You know, how would it be also, can I just point out with my podcasting, how would it be if I were telling you on a regular basis, you can sign up for 99 cents a month to listen to subscriber only podcast episodes as they're released, but don't give money to full-time vocational ministry or to your local church that you attend regularly or you're a member of. How would that be? Don't Muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. A workman is worthy of his hire, his wages. But there's also a flip side to this. There's a flip side where I think a lot of us have grown rather too limited in our view, in our imagination with regards to the operations of the church. And let me ask you this. If you give 10% to a missionary overseas, in, let's say, China, let's say, Saudi Arabia, let's say, France, France needs missionaries, let's say you're a missionary in some foreign field, you're getting 10% of somebody's income in tithes and offerings, and then you read all of this from Tithely, are you going to call up the person who's giving to you, and that's where they're putting their tithes and offerings, are you going to call them up and say, you know what, this should actually be going to the local church and then the local church can send it to me. Why, right? Why? Is that any less giving generously to the operations of the church if it's just a one shot, just right direct, cutting out the middlemen? Or why do we need the middlemen? Is it because it's their responsibility to watch and make sure you're actually giving 10%? How far do you go with that? Should they be also sitting down with you on a monthly basis and looking at, all of the money that you bring in, looking at your bank statements, of course not. But we have certain ways of thinking, I would say, that maybe bear more consideration, more intentionality. Uh, might I also suggest that sometimes, particularly 
as we're going into a recession now, and there's a lot of just absolute craziness with regards to the economy nationally and internationally due to woke ESG investment schemes, the combating of climate change has Ireland, for instance, talking about slaughtering 200,000 cows to fight climate change. You can't make this stuff up. 200,000 cows, what does that do to the cost of dairy and meat? That's insane. You've got the state of Colorado distributing $4 million in emergency funding, emergency funding to 445 food pantries as community need increases. It's not my imagination. It's not your imagination. Things really are getting worse economically. They're not getting better. People in Japan, according to a report from the Daily Wire by Ryan Saavedra, people in Japan are signing up for classes to teach them how to smile again after wearing masks for too long. In this context, where people have been so isolated and cut off from each other in so many cases around the world, where you have governments looking to throttle back the generation of electricity or the production of food to supposedly save the planet, what if we need to think differently about tithing and offerings in the New Testament period? What if we need to think more holistically about what the operation of the church is? I don't know what the stats are off the top of my head for homelessness, But I do know when I drive around Colorado, I see a lot of homeless people. It doesn't seem to matter where I am in Colorado. If I go into downtown Denver, you see a lot of people not doing so great. What's that about? What if some of the tithing and the offering talk needs to be directed to not just guys give more and more and more and more, but hey guys, who is really hurting right now? Who is really crunched and they don't have the money to pay their bills? They don't have enough money to pay for food. Who is really, really hurting right now? And are we coming alongside them? Do we have that sufficiently in our budget? If we have people homeless in our communities, if we have people who are not getting enough to eat in our communities, who are not wearing adequate clothing in our communities, who can't get decent jobs... Maybe, just maybe, we need to think about Matthew 23, 23, along the lines of justice and mercy and faithfulness first. Tithing, Old Testament, take that with a grain of salt. That was the civil government, by the way. That was the whole kit and caboodle. Even if you were paying 30%, by the way, I pay that in taxes right now. That's what comes out of my paycheck every week or every two weeks, rather before I see it, a dime of it. But we're going to tell people who are paying perhaps 25 to 30 plus percent of their income to the government to fund all these programs, you also need to give 10%. Well, that would put me at 45% potentially, 35%. That's not reasonable. That's not fair, particularly with inflation, particularly with stagnant wages. But see, this is where I think we need to be thinking more holistically and approaching the question of how we steward our resources more holistically than is common in our day. And when I say that, I don't mean to cast aspersions on churches putting 
full-time vocational ministry staff on a payroll or giving benefits packages or any of the rest. I don't mean to suggest that having a building is a bad thing or churches that have the means to have a big, beautiful building should feel bad or should be scolded. What I mean is, given where we seem to be going as a culture, as a country, we may need to rethink some of how we have been approaching church and the Christian life. Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher comes to mind as he talks about the church under Soviet communism and how Christians had to go underground and they had to be more secretive. It was a subversive thing to be a Christian and to gather together because, of course, communism sees Christianity as a competing religion. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels were overtly hostile to the claims of Christianity, of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't such fans of. What he would say we should do and not do, they would say, you can't tell me what to do. And they would be on the side of Satan. Let's redistribute the wealth more equitably as we see it. Under Soviet rule, Christians very often had to be more creative. They had to sometimes smuggle. They had to sometimes hide. They had to sometimes be more secretive. And, oh, by the way, let's talk about the church in China today. I'm going to play a clip for you. Cut one here that my wife, Lauren, sent to me this week. And then I've got some thoughts in connection to this whole question of tithing and offerings and what we do stewarding what God has blessed us with materially, financially. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And when you teach in China, you start at eight in the morning and you don't get done till five at night. They were sitting there, all 22 of them. And I looked around. And I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. I had 15 Bibles and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway. And as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She, I went over to her at a break and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh, yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize chapters. She said, in prison, you can't take what's hidden in your heart. I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. I said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I said, I will not do that. I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. Okay. So that's a really compelling bit of audio from Redeemed Melody at Instagram. My wife sent that to me this week. I listened to that and I think a a number of things. I think a number of things. One, pray for the Christians in China and the underground church around the world. 
pray for our brothers and sisters in the Lord in countries where they are overtly persecuted for their faith. They are hounded. They are hunted. They are surveilled 24-7. They are at risk of losing their jobs, their livelihood, their homes, their families, their freedom to move about in society for being a Christian. Pray for them and pray for us. Pray for Christians here in the U.S. Pray for Christianity here in the U.S. Originally, the term Christian was a pejorative, and it was a way of mocking these followers of the way, as they initially called themselves, followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ. It was a pejorative. Oh, you little Christs. And I would love to know more about the story of how this came to be, but what I do know is sufficient for the moment. Christians decided to embrace the pejorative, and they gloried in the insult and the mockery. And they said, yes, we are little Christs. That is the idea. We are (laughs) little Christs. We are not so bold and so audacious and so arrogant as to suppose that we are in every way as obedient and faithful as Christ himself. But that's the idea. That's our goal. That's our aim. But here you have these Christians being thrown in prison if they're caught meeting together without express CCP permission. And here's the thing. (laughs) Here's the thing. As an American Christian, I look at what's happened over the last several years, and really for all of my coming-of-age adulthood, I look at getting married to my wife, Lauren, our winter semester right before finals week. You can tell how much we cared about (laughs) how we did on our finals, perhaps. (laughs) But we got married on November 25th, 2006, because we cared more about how our marriage would end up than we did about how our GPA would turn out, or even if we finished college at that point. And we got pregnant immediately because Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage from Yahweh. And so thank you, but no thank you to the bag of birth control, because we believe that children are a blessing, are a heritage from Yahweh. And you can hear one of my children downstairs banging on something, helping his mother with a project. And that's a blessing and it's okay. And I'm not going to filter that out. And it's fine. I have a house full of children. I wish it was a house that I owned, but it's a house and the Lord provides. But we got married and we got pregnant immediately with our oldest son, Josiah. He was born hmm, about eight months after Lauren and I got married. And then about 11 months after he was born, our second son, Eli, came along. Because as a matter of fact, we didn't realize that we would get pregnant again so soon. But we did. We we did. And I don't regret it for a moment. I'm so glad that Eli is a part of this family. I believe strongly that the Lord has good plans and purposes for Elihu James Mullet in the world. And then sometime after, we got pregnant again. Before you knew it, we had four kids. And it was the year 2012. And for those first five years, 
and some change of Lauren's and my marriage. What happened with the economy? What happened was what they call the Great Recession. And in our part of the country, in southern Ohio, there was double-digit unemployment. A lot of people out of work. And the jobs that there were to be had were not high-paying jobs. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people competing for a limited number of jobs. And so employers, they ratcheted up the job requirements. All of a sudden, to do menial entry-level work, they wanted somebody with a bachelor's degree. And to do anything even just slightly more advanced, they wanted a more advanced degree in many cases and three to five years of experience. And so here I was as the sole breadwinner trying to get into the workforce. And it took moving my family back home to my home state of Montana, uprooting, moving to Montana to get off of public assistance to get off of food stamps and WIC and PIP, to get into a house that we could rent on our own, and then to buy our own house and to get a more respectable vehicle, to get a better vehicle, to shuttle our family, our growing family around, to be able to help extended family, because that's what you do, by the way. That's what you do. Once you get to a place where you are self-sufficient, where you have enough You don't just keep on hoarding your wealth. You help your extended family if you're reading your Bible closely. But then as the video points out that I played the audio for you from, the average household in America has two Bibles. And I would disagree with him that we don't read any of them, but many of us don't read them. Many of us who even go to church want to listen to somebody else tell us what the Bible means in the most entertaining way possible, or the way that flatters us most. For some, that's prosperity theology. For others, it might take an angrier tone. For some, it might be all-inclusive, and for others, it might be as exclusive as possible so that only those who are listening are the elect. Either way, it's flattery. What do you want to hear? I'll say it. A lot of these teachers and counselors have built their ministries and their churches and their parachurch organizations on that basis. And so the donations roll in. And it's not to say that Christians who are wealthy, who have means, shouldn't be giving to churches and ministries. It's not to say that at all. But it is to say I question sometimes Just trying to start a family with the Great Recession underway, I question sometimes, just based on my own lived experience, having people in my extended family who were millionaires and who made a show of supporting those who were in full-time vocational ministry, having a number of family members in full-time vocational ministry, I question sometimes why it is that not once, not a single time in 16 years of marriage, no matter how hard my wife and I struggled, not a single time did I get a call from any one of those family members that were so very, very well off asking, hey, how are you and Lauren and the kids doing financially? Do you need anything? Can we help you? Do you guys have enough clothing for your kids and for you and for Lauren? How's your diet? How's your furniture situation? How are your medical bills doing? 
Can I put you in touch with somebody that I know who is looking for decent people to hire? Not a single solitary instance of those kinds of phone calls. But boy, howdy, were they happy to make a show of supporting those who were in full-time vocational ministry. And when some of my cousins decided that they were going to go and do missions work, and then they made the rounds, and they said, hey, we could use some support. What did I do? At the time, I signed up to support financially. But not a once did any of the extended family say, hey, we see that you're doing this blogging thing, this podcasting thing. You're trying to write books. Could you use any help? Do you have everything that you need? How's it going? I'd like to help support what you're doing and what you're doing with your family, your big, beautiful family that we love and that we want to see come to family reunions for photo ops. We'd love to see you come out so we can sit down with you and talk with you and catch up. But first, we'd like to make sure that you're squared away, that you guys are okay. When medical bills, when medical bills come rolling in, when your cost of living goes up and up, we want to make sure that you're okay. We want to give you some advice. You know, there have been some, and let me be very fair and very clear, there have been some family members who have been generous. They've opened their homes. They've made connections. I have one aunt in particular I'm thinking of who reached out to me and made the decisive little bit of input. And she's the only one who made the decisive little bit of input to say, you should come on out to Montana and get connected with your cousin who's in the oil and gas industry and get a job in the oil and gas industry because they're paying really well. It didn't require any more than just caring on her part to make that connection and to say, hey, I know some one of the family who can help connect you with a way to get independent because that's the goal, right? That's the goal is to be financially independent, self-sufficient. And then when we moved our family out, there were some who said, yeah, we'll help you move and unpack. But there were far more who didn't lift a finger, although they had for years to that point wagged fingers from afar behind the scenes, all the while sitting very comfortably, very, very comfortably, and giving to full-time vocational ministry. And here's my big question. If we look at the situation in China and we say, we've got Christians in China who are willing to go to prison for three years at a time, as a friend of mine, a friend and a minister, I have plenty of friends who are full-time ministers. Hopefully I haven't made them all angry with me in saying what I'm saying in this podcast. I'm not trying to get people to stop giving to churches, by the way. Not trying to do that. You should give, and you should give cheerfully, but you should not give under compulsion, and you should not give with your arm twisted. And we do need to think more holistically. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, guys. Please, please. (laughs) Don't unfriend me. Don't block me. Don't hate me. (laughs) Pray for me if I'm wrong in anything I'm saying here. But I had a friend and a full-time vocational minister that I sent this video that I played the audio for you from. I sent him the video and I said, is this what you hear as well? Because he's got connections that do missionary work in China. I say, is this what you hear as well? Or is this consistent with your experience? And you know what he told me? He told me that in China, he's heard that some small bodies of believers, small local churches, won't even let someone be a pastor 
unless they have gone to prison for their faith. How backwards do we have it in so many ways here in the American church that we look at somebody being raised with the best pedigree, having gone to the best schools, having been bankrolled by the wealthiest members of their extended family. (laughs) That's what qualifies them for leadership in the American church. How good they look on the jumbotron. How good they look on the podcast video. And I'm not knocking having a big screen in a church either. Don't, Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not knocking pastors and ministry leaders having podcasts. God forbid. I mean, what am I doing? I'm podcasting. I think that can be a legitimate outreach tool. But what I'm saying is so much of the American church culture has grown up needing and demanding that only those who are seen as successful be put forward as the leaders and the examples. And then, oh, ho, ho, let's look at the fine print in many cases. What does it take to be successful? Go to the best school, have a winning smile, be charming and funny and confident and athletic and have cool hobbies and be completely debt-free. And let me just ask the question. Let me ask the question that is so uncomfortable, the elephant in the room. Why, oh, why, oh, why is that the precondition? But more of the church is not interested in dealing with the fundamentals that make it difficult for young couples to be pure because there is so much sexual immorality in the world. Every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband and both should render to one another their conjugal duties, Paul writes. And yet, what do we do so often? We tell the young man in college, the young girl in college, wait until you've finished your degree to get married. That will really prove your devotion to God. In China, what proves your devotion to God is you're willing to depart so much from what is seen as the path to success, you're willing to go to prison. How shameful and embarrassing and humiliating is it for a traditional Chinese person to go to prison apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? And here we would tell somebody who even just isn't going to finish college or university or seminary before they get married, if they find someone they believe the Lord wants them to be with, and they're wanting to be obedient and faithful to scripture, what do we do? We cast aspersions. We say, oh, well, that's clearly not the Lord's will. Clearly, clearly, the Lord would really want you to finish college like everybody else does. Finish your advanced degree like everybody else does. Go to seminary like everybody else does. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should say every Christian in America is inferior to every Christian in the underground church abroad. I'm not suggesting that. I believe that there is persecution for Christians here in the U.S. You're just not supposed to call it that, which makes it all the more lonely. You're not supposed to call it persecution here because so much of going mainstream has been normalized and spiritualized, and we've come up with justifications and excuses for it. We've come up with very fine-sounding phrases and arguments that allow us to completely ignore what obedience to God would actually mean. And oh, how self-serving is it when those who are very well off financially 
give generously and publicly in so many cases, and then are deferred to in disobedience to Scripture, by the way, because James says explicitly, show no partiality to the rich brother if he comes into your assembly. You don't say to the rich brother, sit in the seat of honor, and to the poor brother, sit at my feet. You don't do that. That makes you an unjust judge. And wouldn't it actually be more holy and better service to God if we were getting the partiality thing right compared with telling people to tithe more? How cruel is it to say to so many young people who are now saddled, not just with personal debt, if they were told to go off to college and get meaningless degrees, just as long as you've got a degree from somewhere that's not horrible, that's all that we're asking, mom and dad say, the high school guidance counselor says, the college recruiter says, up until not long ago, at least. I'm listening to Brainwashed by Ben Shapiro. This is an older book that he wrote before he was a household name. Back in 2004, he wrote this book, Brainwashed, with a foreword from David Limbaugh. This is not news. It's not a new thing that these kids are getting brainwashed. But guess what? The people who are sending these kids into the university and college system, higher education, to rack up the debt have also just been following the crowd, following the leader, doing whatever the person in front of them does in so many cases. But how cruel is it to say to young people, go to college and get all this debt built up. And then, oh, by the way, while you're building up your debt over there, the adults in the room, so-called, are going to rack up the national debt so that every few months, we're going to have a conversation about the whole nation, the whole United States of America defaulting on the national debt. And do they scale it back? Do they cut welfare and entitlements? Do they undo burdensome regulation that stifles creativity, that stifles competition? Do they scale back the taxes that suck in a vampiric fashion? What would be the seed capital for young entrepreneurs? Do they scale back the taxes so that more people can experiment in starting a business, in coming up with an invention, with developing their ideas. And then we tell these young couples, these young families, as they have children, oh, you really probably shouldn't be having quite so many kids. You know, yeah, the children are a blessing, but that doesn't mean you need to have, you know, more than the average. Safety in numbers, as long as it's the broader society consensus, not safety in numbers for, you know, your household. Because then you would have jurisdiction. And that's another thing. The tithing push can, not to say that it must, not to say that it always does, but it can so easily burden young families that are already struggling to make ends meet. Now, in my case, I work in an industry, in the oil and gas industry, that has been under siege thanks to the Democrats for ever since I got in. I got into the industry back in 2012, about halfway through Barack Obama's two terms. And it was under siege back then. But it was so robust and it was so energetic and it was so excited and it was so profitable at a time when the whole rest of the country was going through the Great Recession that they were really hard pressed to tamp it down. They did, but it took them a while. It took them a minute. And in the meantime, what did I do? I got out of debt. I got off of public assistance. We bought a house. And then 
the schemes of the left found the combination, the correct combination of levers to pull and knobs to turn and buttons to push. And they got us. And there were layoffs. And I didn't get laid off. I haven't been laid off once in almost a decade and two years. In almost a dozen years, I haven't been laid off once, but lots of men were. And even the ones who weren't laid off saw everything scaled back. If you were getting overtime before, not so much now. So the best years of a young person's life, the most productive, energetic, excited, enthusiastic years of a young person's life, what has the left done up until this point? Taxed and regulated and brainwashed. And now, not content with that, I guess that got old. I guess that got boring. Now they've moved on to something really godlike. They're going to take control over gender and sexuality and whether your children can reproduce and whether they're attracted to the opposite gender. Not just do they get married or not. Nah, that's, that's so 1970s sexual revolution. No, no, let's move on to something really new. Let's get them all interested in their own gender and being as promiscuous as possible because that's another way to make sure that they don't reproduce if they're not the right sort. And so many respectable folk have made a big show out of supporting, endorsing, affirming, and donating to respectable mainstream establishment types who won't rock the boat too much, won't draw too much attention. Because heaven knows we wouldn't want to be like those Chinese Christians who go to prison for three years at a time if they're caught participating in an underground church Bible study. This is where we're at. And so in a certain sense, and here's where I will say I I have some mixed feelings about what this audio just presented to you concludes. On the one hand, yes, I wish that we were more like Christians being described in the underground church in China. I wish more of us had that kind of boldness and that same kind of faithfulness and that same kind of clarity of priorities. But on the other hand, I think to myself, shouldn't we be praying that they would be delivered from persecution? I mean, read Eusebius, read the church histories. Eusebius lived through that time and rejoiced and celebrated. It was a happy day. It was a day to mark throughout all generations when God delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. It was a happy, happy day when the church was no longer the target of intense persecution under the Roman Empire. Eusebius is absolutely clear about this. And yet, what are we doing? Are we reading our Bibles, much less Eusebius and the church histories? In all too many cases, no. But what are we doing? Some of us make a big show out of praying that we would be more like the persecuted church in countries like China. When I was very, very young, The president of the United States of America was a man named Ronald Reagan. It was a major part of his response to the Soviet Union that he called for a lifting of persecution of Christians under the Soviet umbrella. Not that he started instituting those kinds of persecutions here because, well, you know, it'll be really all for the best. We don't want to pray that we would be more like Christians who are persecuted for their faith who lose their businesses and their jobs and their homes and their freedom under communistic rule. We should be praying 
that we would be faithful and that they would be faithful. And what if it just so happened that God has given us a very special place in world history that so many of us as Christians are absolutely derelict regarding. We're absolutely negligent regarding. We have the equivalent of be warmed and fed to persecuted Christians around the world as a result of. What if it just so happened that we should be hoping to be faithful like so many of these brothers and sisters in China and elsewhere are being? But what if faithfulness doesn't mean we hope and pray that there would be a communist takeover in the United States. What if it actually meant we hope and pray to be faithful in our context, and if we find ourselves in a position to not just send money overseas, but to have a government that won't persecute our brothers and sisters in this country? We argue for that clearly, effectively, cogently. What is Augustine's City of God about? What is it that he is driving at in his seminal work? That you had the claim being circulated among the pagans that Rome fell, Rome collapsed because of the Christians. Because the Christians made Rome weak. And Augustine takes this claim, this argument, this accusation so seriously, he writes a giant book of history and theology and political analysis and historical analysis to rebut it. And it's a great work of apologetics that we need more books like. But he says, no, no, no. Christians make the very best citizens. And actually, oh, by the way, the whole reason that the Roman Empire was great in the first place is because your ancestors were more virtuous than the peoples around them. Whatever their motives were, they were more virtuous. They did the right thing more often because it worked, because there was a blessing in that. And doing the wicked thing when the nations around Rome and the peoples around Rome did the wicked thing, there was a consequence. There was a curse that came with that. We need to be able to articulate those kinds of assessments and judgments. We got a little bit of a taste of it through COVID with Christians being called anti-science if they wanted to gather together anyways. Conservatives opposing gender theory, opposing critical race theory, opposing mask mandates and social distancing and lockdowns and vaccine mandates were told they were anti-science, anti-authority, racist, bigoted, transphobic, all of the bad things, very similar to what the pagans were telling Christians and saying amongst one another as Rome was falling. Augustine wasn't having it, and we shouldn't accept it silently either. How do you think it came to be that we had so much built up in Western civilization? We had so much built up in the United States of America, so many inventions, so much creativity, so much prosperity, so much strength, so much stability politically. It's because of how many Christians Western civilization was comprised of, American history was comprised of, American society in the present, seeing fewer and fewer 
outspoken Christians relative the whole, and more and more Christians deceived into believing the most Christ-like thing you could do is to just keep silent and not judge anybody and just give your money to the government to be redistributed and argue for other people to be fleeced. How does that dovetail with being able to give to the work of ministry and support missionaries and pastors and churches, which is, again, a very good thing to do. I'm not trying to say we don't do that thing, but I'm saying thinking holistically, it would take a lot of wind out of the sails of the Marxists if we as Christians were saying the operations of the church more broadly are to care for the widows and orphans and their need, to visit them. That's religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable to visit orphans and widows in their need, to give secretly so that only your Father in heaven knows what you're giving. So then he will reward you. There is a little bit of good news to share with you. Edward Teach reports at Not To Be just yesterday, Gallup poll shows more people now identify as socially conservative than at any point in the past decade This might not be enough of a rise right now, and it could dip just as fast as it has risen. But nevertheless, the percentage of very conservative or conservative is up to 38%. The percentage of very liberal or liberal is at 29%, which is to say there are more who identify as conservative than there are those who identify as liberal. That is important. That is significant. Doesn't mean nothing. As for social issues, 38% say they are conservative. Highest since 2012, the year that I got into oil and gas, interestingly enough. 44% say they are economically conservative. I would love to see those numbers equal to each other because I think if you really are consistently and thoughtfully and considerately uh, social conservative, you will also be fiscally conservative. The two go hand in hand. Political conservatism goes hand in hand with theological conservatism, goes hand in hand with social and fiscal conservatism. But nevertheless... 44% saying they're economically conservative. Could get better. I'd like to see that. All the same, whose staff is budding? Who does God choose? You know, what's interesting about the number 17 passage is that God would do a miracle to prove to the people of Israel who his chosen leader, his chosen chief was. That's so interesting to me. God has to, or chooses to, depending on how you see it or how you want to say it. I don't mean God is limited. I mean, we are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. When I say God has to, I mean, that's where we were at as human beings, as God's people. God's people were so stiff-necked and hard-hearted and stubborn and willful that God blessed Aaron's staff and caused it to bud supernaturally to prove and then said, keep it around, keep it handy, right? In case this starts bubbling up again, this rebellion, which is to say, once is not going to be enough, the people will be hard-hearted again. They will rise up in rebellion again, or 
leaders, prominent, influential, ambitious men will rise up again and try to sideline Moses and Darren or whoever it is at that time God has chosen. Keep that staff handy and show it to somebody who starts to get very vocal, very active, very agitated, who tries to stir up other people as well. For all we know, America as a country has been handed over for judgment, for sifting, and that's what we're going through right now. But here's the question, will God be so kind as to show which staff is budding, that he would bless that leader to be leading his people? Or will we say, whoever, whoever has the winningest smile, whoever has the biggest bank account, the nicest house, the prettiest wife, the cutest kids, that's who we will put as our leader. I hope not. I hope not. But all of this brings me to the last topic for this podcast episode, which is the 5 a.m. Club, Own Your Morning, Elevate Your Life by Robin Sharma. This is a book I just finished, and I'll be honest with you, I really did not like it. I really didn't. I, I didn't. And if somebody out there listens to this podcast episode and they hear what I'm about to say and I'm incorrect in anything, please correct me. Please correct me where I'm wrong. In the meantime, I'm going to say what I believe to be true and what I believe to be good in relation to this book. And it's not to say that this book embodied what I believe to be true and what I believe to be good. This was motivational speaking in narrative form. And that was surprising. I didn't realize that going into it. You might ask, well, why did you buy this book? Why did you listen to this book in the first place? And it's very simple. It showed up as recommended for those who read How to Talk to Anyone and Quiet. I started out, I think, reading How to Win an Argument by Cicero. I read that. And next came a series of recommendations, including the three titles I just mentioned. The 5 a.m. Club is the last of the three additional titles that I picked up from Audible because I got to glancing at them and I thought, well, they have pretty good ratings and I do want to improve and grow as a person. And so, yes, I should be more comfortable with the introverted people in my life. And there's a lot of praise that the extroverted get, a lot of attention, but we need to understand better how to interact with introverted people very introverted people because I have some very introverted people who are close to me and I want to be considerate of them. I want to see their strengths. I want to help them to be happy and healthy and holy. My wife is very introverted, for instance, for example, especially some of our kids, I think are much more introverted than extroverted. I want to lead them well. I want to love them well. I want to give them good counsel. That was an okay book, right? Quiet was an okay book. How to talk to anyone was also, it was okay, right? It wasn't the best book I've ever read. It didn't blow my mind. This book, The 5 a.m. Club, I didn't like. I really didn't like. In fact, it gave me the creeps, if you want to know the truth. It made me slightly nauseous intellectually. 
You know that taste you get in your mouth when you've eaten something that is past its prime? That taste when you take a glass of milk that maybe you didn't realize was past the expiration date, but you drink it anyways, or you put it into your cereal, and now you've got to throw the whole bunch out because that was really good cold cereal. Lucky Charms are my favorite, if anybody wants to know. Fun fact, trivia for you. I love Lucky Charms. They are magically delicious. It's true. It's true. But now you got to throw it out because you can't, <laughs> you can't salvage the Lucky Charms once you've put sour milk in with the Lucky Charms. That milk was good at one point, but that point is not this point. That point is in the past. And now this milk is not good. Now it's sour. Now it's gross. And now, so also is the bowl of cereal. That's what I would liken the 5 a.m. club to. It's gross. It's gross. It was good. And, and let me just unpack what it is. It's a series of quotes, one after another, after another, after another, sprinkled in as if that's the way people have conversation. If you watch Les Miserables, the musical, and you hear nothing but everybody singing the dialogue, and you think to yourself, well, that's not realistic. People don't do that. You know, the fiddler on the roof is better because at least there's some spoken word to make up the bulk of it, and then every now and then they break into song. And I'm kind of that way. I can be that way from time to time. Mostly dialogue, and then occasionally I'll just break into song briefly, and then back to dialogue. But Les Miserables, you watch it and you think, yeah, that's not real. People don't just sing everything like that. Well, that's kind of what this was like. Robin Sharma's narrative of just quote after quote after quote after quote, cliche after cliche after cliche after cliche, the power of positive thinking, will it blend? Can we just cram all of this into something approximating a story about people and then you're supposed to be inspired by it? I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. And part of the reason I didn't like it is not just that it was cliche and it was chock full of quotes and it felt unoriginal and it felt poorly written from a narrative standpoint. It felt like somebody in the new age, in the postmodern, live your best life, self-esteem is the most important thing you could reach out for, day and age that we live in right now. Somebody in that mold said, how about we do the John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress thing, but for this zeitgeist, for this social imaginary. And then what you get is the 5 a.m. club. It's godless. And that's not always a deal killer because sometimes things that are godless, you can read them and you can say, yeah, but all truth is God's truth. And so this is not violating anything that God says is good and true. And so is it true without being a quotation of scripture. Is it true without referencing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Is it true without <laughs> necessarily being explicitly Christian? There are plenty of works out there that are useful. For instance, if I go searching for a PDF manual online, a technical manual for some piece of automation out in the field, and there's not a single solitary Bible reference, 
there's not a single reference to Jesus Christ our Lord or Trinitarian doctrine, that's okay, right? I don't need the Athanasian Creed right this second. I take it with me, but what I need right now is to figure out why my Modbus communication from the Agar unit to the ProSoft module is not carrying data through to the Allen Bradley PLC. That's what I really want to know right now. So just give me what I need. <laughs> give me the technical details. And other works on other subjects besides just automation can have that kind of a flavor. But, 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 something of the tell, something of the giveaway in this particular book is when we get the grown-up version of follow your heart. Whatever you want, that's the most important thing. Whoever you think you are, that's the most important thing. And all the haters will define. We'll define the haters as the people who tell you, well, no, that's not correct. That's not true. No, that's not who you are. No, that's not, you're not actually very good at that. You know, sometimes those people are right. Not always. Sometimes they're jealous. Sometimes they're just cynical and bitter. But sometimes they're right. And if we say they're always haters, if they say to us, oh, no, that's not correct. That's not good. Shouldn't do that. No, that's not good. Well, then what we get is what we have right now, where Christians are told that they are hate-filled bigots for denying someone's professed gender identity, someone's preferred pronouns. No, 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 no. What you really mean is you hate the truth. You hate the truth that you're not a woman. You're actually a man who went through the surgery and the hormone treatment, and now you dress up like a woman. You hate the truth that you're not a woman, and you never will be. That doesn't make me a hate-filled bigot. Actually, it might mean that you're hate-filled because the truth is all around you and you're denying it. And I care about you too much. I care about the other people in your vicinity too much to affirm that untruth. So I read this book and I'm thinking on the front end. I'm thinking the 5 a.m. club. That's great. I wake up at 5 a.m. So you got me there. And I'm listening to all these quotes and I'm thinking, well, that's a good quote. That's a good quote. That's an okay quote. And that quote, uh, the, the author, the guy who said it, not so great, but technically I would agree with that quote, I suppose. But all the same, it's like putting sour milk into your Lucky Charms. Do you pour yourself a bowl of Lucky Charms for the milk or for the Lucky Charms? Do you pour some milk into a bowl of Lucky Charms? for the sake of the milk or for the sake of the lucky charms? Which is the main and which is the accessory? That's what's wrong with this book, The 5 a.m. Club. The milk is sour. The quotes are the lucky charms. Most of them are magically delicious, I would say. But then sprinkled in the midst is cliche after cliche, like this clumpy, sour, curdled milk. And once you taste it, if you know what Lucky Charms are supposed to taste like, and when you know what milk is supposed to taste like, you're like, ugh, no. Perhaps, 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 one of the more disturbing things about this book is that I went over to Robin Sharma's website because I was trying to figure out at a certain point when I decide that I hate a book so much, I want to know more about the author. I want to know who is this person that wrote this book that has now wasted this much of my time. However much time it is, this book has wasted this much of my time and it's going to continue on wasting more of my time because I hate it that much. Who is this guy or this gal? I don't know. 
Robin is an ambiguous name. You really can't tell. Some Robins are men, some are women. Robin Sharma just happens to be a man, it would appear. Although these days, these days even appearances can be deceiving. But Robin Sharma, if I go over to his website, I see that he is one of the top five leadership experts in the world, or he's considered to be. He's an internationally acclaimed best-selling author. He wrote The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. He wrote The Everyday Hero Manifesto. I see him pictured with Deepak Chopra. And just for anyhow, why don't I play for you cut two? Here's Deepak Chopra speaking with regards to Robin Sharma. And you can hear what Deepak Chopra thinks of him. Here's cut two. Take a listen. I've known Robin Sharma ever since he wrote his first book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And I've watched his career and he has been an amazing mentor in many ways to me. He has changed the way many leaders and CEOs think of business. And he's certainly uh, a major influencer of our times and a luminary. And Robin, it's because of your impact and your influence on the lives of people around the world. I'm glad you're my friend. I love your teaching. And let's do some more. Your personal brand should describe the best version of yourself and picture someone you can look up to and strive to be. From now on, I would like to be called the Black Robin. Okay, so it wasn't just Deepak Chopra. It was also John C. Maxwell. It was also Shaquille O'Neal. So very successful people like this guy. I get it. I get it. Okay, cool. Robin Sharma. He's got broad appeal. I look at some of the quotes here without playing any more audio. Some of the quotes. Thank you for making a difference to our organization. Pfizer CEO. Well, that didn't age well. <laughs> uh, the power of positive thinking, huh? Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, Microsoft, thank you for being an inspiration and thought-provoking keynote speaker. Great. Wonderful. Shaq O'Neal, one day I'd like to be called Black Robin. All right. We can call you Black Robin right now. Um, this book is still terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> probably the book that you would write, Shaquille O'Neal, would also be terrible then. I, I'm just guessing. Maybe even more terrible. Would that make you even better than Robin Sharma? Maybe. Probably. These days, yes. Barrick Gold Corporation, quote, Robin inspired us to lead in uncertain times, gave us pages of real-world tactics to accelerate productivity, end quote. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. So he's sold a lot of books. This is not his first rodeo. He is a celebrated leadership icon and trusted advisor to Fortune 100 companies, sport legends, elite performers, and Titans of industry. His webpage says he's got 4.2 million followers supposedly on Facebook, 1.2 million on Instagram, 958,000 on YouTube, 605,000 on Twitter. And so what? So what? If the guy can speak confidently in front of a large crowd, that doesn't mean that he's right. It doesn't mean that you should then therefore follow your heart. 
just wherever it leads. Now, that's not to say that we should do the opposite. Anytime your heart tells you you want to do a certain thing, you are very passionate about something, you care a lot about something, you love to do something, you want to do something, don't do it. No, no. But there's an additional step that's being left out, guys. There's an additional crucial step that if you don't get that step, what you get is new age pop psychology and just the power of positive thinking. You get a mantra. You get a mantra. And oh, by the way, can I just briefly say, I find it annoying and I find it off-putting that this would be a best-selling book in part because I think there's a lot of people who read a book like this that's just chock full of quotes and they think thereby they have then taken an accelerated course, an advanced course, an honors course in the writings and the thoughts of the men who are being quoted. Oh, yeah, I can recite a quote by Mark Twain. Yeah, absolutely. George Bernard Shaw. Yeah, I got one. I got one of his uh, too. Yeah, you, you betcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly well read. I've read a quote from each of those men. Yes, Frederick Nietzsche, I've heard of him in Robin Sharma's book. <laughs> yes, yes, I am well read. Come on, come on. You know, this is flattery. This is tickling, itching ears. This is exactly how the Antichrist is going to appeal to a broad audience as well. The whole world, and even sometimes, in some cases, the elect. They will buy into this power of positive thinking mantra, and so long as they are wealthier than most people in their generation, at the end of the day, they'll say, see, it worked. See? But again, 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 I'll refer you back to Numbers chapter 17. Number 17, I'll read it for you again here at the end of the episode, because it's not a long chapter. It's 13 verses long, and it's been a minute now, or an hour and 46 minutes. 45 minutes since we read it the first time. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staves, one for each father's house from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. So herein we see the 12 tribes would refer to their namesakes. That is the 12 sons of Jacob renamed Israel because he wrestled with God. Those are their father's houses. If you intermarry with another tribe, your mom was from a different tribe, your father's house is what counts. It's patrilineal. Write each man's name on his staff and, verse 3, write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. And who is God speaking to when he says, which they grumble against you? He's speaking to Moses. So what's interesting here is Aaron having his name on a staff, and that staff being caused to bud is actually to put to rest grumbling against God and against God's servant Moses. Verse 6, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses. Twelve staffs. 
and the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before Yahweh in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before Yahweh to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And Yahweh said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, as Yahweh commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of Yahweh shall die. Are we all to perish? End quote. They are convicted. They realize they have erred greatly because God has gone from, this will put to rest the grumbling that they grumble against you, Moses, to this will make an end of their grumblings against me, God says, lest they die, God says. This is deadly serious. You don't just sprinkle in quotes from renowned men any more than you just sprinkle in staffs from the chiefs of fathers' houses among the people and say, ah, you recognize this name? Great. Do what I say. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Not according to God. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. Do yourself a favor. Do not read The 5 a.m. Club. Or if you do, at least go into it knowing it is like a bowl of Lucky Charms, which is magically delicious, filled with sour milk. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.